Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Harvest. We love our Savior, and we believe in our God, and we stand on His truth, and we're going to continue to do that today from 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. Yeah, that's right, four chapters. Get ready. You want to get a head start there, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back, or you can open up your phone. We would love for you, if you don't have one, to take one. We love God's Word, because we stand on His promises, and we declare His greatness in every aspect and in every situation. We do that together. We do that together. Thanks for worshiping with us. I, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know. If, how many people have ever heard of Star Wars in this? You're like, what? You look at me like crazy. Like, all right. So I'm like, Star Wars? Oh, yeah. Ever heard of the Clone Wars, right? Yeah. The Holy Wars back in medieval times, right? Today, we're going to talk about worship wars. Some of you are like, uh-oh. And no, here's the reality, though. We're not talking about something in a galaxy far, far away. We're talking about something that is in very, very close proximity in our hearts. We've been saying before this, since this series started, that the heart of the matter is a war of worship for who sits on the throne of our hearts. Today in the text, we're going to see multiple battles that are fought. And the reality is we get that because we all walked in this room fighting multiple battles ourselves, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We're going to see the, the, the most significant battle, however, it's not physical, it's not, waged on the ba- it's not waged on the battlefield out there, it's waged on the battlefield in here in my own heart. When I say worship wars, some of you are like starting to convulse, here let me take you off ease, I'm not talking about a debating singing hymns versus contemporary music, okay? We're not take, talking about the, debating the color of the carpet, talking about whether we should say, have music that is more clapping oriented, by the way, maybe someday we'll be a clapping church, I don't know or contemplative, or how high to raise or not raise your hands, or how if it's okay to move your body a little rhythmically to the music every once in a while. It is, by the way. I want you to have freedom in worship in that way. We're not talking about the aesthetics of a stage. We're talking about the adoration and the affection of our hearts. That's what worship wars we're talking about in our souls. Worship, by definition, is the ascription of worth. Our word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. Literally, what is worthy of my attention, my affection, my adoration, my life, my time, my talent, my money. Worship is a declaration of something or someone's value and of worth to you. And it is a foundation whether you realize it on the basis of your, on which you build your life. You're like, I don't know, I'm not a worshiper. Yes, you are. You might worship becoming a lawyer, so you give all your time studying to pass the bar and to make partner. You worship, you're giving it affection, you're oriented, you're choosing to study over doing other things or investing your money or doing this or doing that. You might worship being a star athlete or a great musician or, the, or getting to the level of general or admiral or whatever the top is in your field. And you sacrifice for it, you devote things to it, you say no to other things so you can say yes to this thing. You're choosing to worship. What you worship not only stirs your soul, but it steers your life as it dictates the dec- your decisions that you make and it drives the affections. What are you worshiping today, friends? 
We say here at Harvest, and you'll see it in a variety of contexts. You'll see it written in different things. You see it hanging on the walls here that we are about unashamed adoration, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. You want more information about that? We'd love for you to come to step two after the second service to hear more about our hearts for that. It is a pillar. It is a foundation upon which God is building his church here. We're going to see in the text today that every moment of every day is a battle for worship. Every decision because I'm, I'm making a decision on what I am prioritizing, this or that, this or that. By definition, I'm saying this is more worthy of my time than that. And some things are, are not of consequence. Should I take a nap or should I do more work? Like, okay, at the end of the day, it's going to be okay either way. Other things are very consequential. Decisions that we make, where we put our faith. Worship is not just an emotional expression, but worship today is a passionate overflow of a heart that has experienced true gospel transformation. We're going to see today in the reality of the text that worship is not using God for our purposes, but it's submitting our lives under the authority and the greatness of God to give our lives to accomplishing God's purpose. A stark warning we're going to see today is that when we worship counterfeit gods, it will destroy us. You know, gods that look like they will provide satisfaction, look like they will provide what we are looking for but ultimately they will destroy you. Only worshiping the one true God will deliver you. We all worship something. What are you worshiping today? Who are you worshiping today? Here's a big idea for today. You'll see it on the screen. You'll see it in your notes that experiencing victory comes through living reverently. We are all fighting battles today and I want you to have victory. What victory? Hope, peace, joy, purpose, salvation, deliverance, all of those things which you are searching for, whether you realize it or not, significance. And you might, you might be like, on the surface, no, I'm not. I just want a promotion. Well, deeper on the heart level, you're actually looking for significance. You're looking for identity. Your heart is yearning for what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes can only be fulfilled by eternity by God. And we're going to see a battle plan that God's going to give us for how to fight this war of worship that is raging. My hope and my prayer for you today is that we learn to live reverently because in and through that we will experience mighty victory. I pray that you experience victory today. I want victory in my own heart. There are things that I need victory over that God needs to do a work in me and that will be that way till this side, until this side of eternity is done. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to work today. Father, I just pray that you would get me out of the way and that you would work. I just sense in a mighty way that you want to work in a profound way in hearts and lives in this room. Whether they're watching online or whether they're here right now in person, God, their family here and they matter to you. We all matter to you. God, thank you for your love and your care, your affection for us and may your passion for us drive us to a response of adoration and passion back to you for who you are. God, I pray in these moments that you would silence me and that you would flow. Holy Spirit, do your thing. Speak, Lord. Help us to listen. Help us to hear and help us to obey. Help me to get out of the way. Father, do what you say you will do. We, we claim your promises and your truth that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and it will convict and it will compel, it will exhort and it will encourage. I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would remove inhibitions and distractions from this place and you would produce a desperation for you and a dependency on you. God, that flows out of a heart that just desires you above all else. We need you, God. In your mighty name we pray, amen.
So 1 Samuel 4 through 7. We're going to look at a battle plan for today. You know, I, I have the privilege, I have not had the privilege of serving in the military. I've had the privilege of knowing many, 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 many folks that have served in the military, really good friends throughout the years. Many of you serve in the military. Thank you so much for that. One of my good military friends and mentors many years ago said, you know, Dan, here's the reality. Proper planning prevents poor performance. Now, that's just not a military thing, right? But before you go into war, you need a battle plan or else you're going to fail. Because the reality is, is that failure today is not going to see, failure that occurs not because of the presence of the battle, but often because of the impotence of the battle plan. We need to have a battle. And here's our battle plan right here. 66 books worth of a battle plan. Specifically, what we're going to see today, three steps on our three parts of a battle plan that, that God's going to lay out for us for how we fight this battle of worship. The first part of our battle plan is this. It's to restore reverence. And restoring reverence is because of this reason. God's glory should lead me to reverence. So I need to restore reverence in my heart. Again, this is a war of worship, a battle for my heart. What is reverence? Reverence is going to be a key word today. And here's a working definition of it to help us. You'll see it on the screen. Reverence is this. It's a living daily with a profound respect and love for God that flows from a fully surrendered heart to God and produces a life committed to exalting, glorifying, honoring, and obeying God in every season, in every situation, and in every circumstance. That's reverence. In the mountaintops, and maybe you're walking in here on a great mountaintop, or in the deepest of valleys, our calling, our privilege, and our responsibility is reverence, which is another way to say worship. Because God is still God and he's worthy of our praise no matter our circumstances. We worship God because of his character, not because of our circumstances. As we pick up this text today in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to see this. That Samuel has just, as we concluded last week, been installed as the prophet of God over the nation of Israel, the people of God. He, he's installed as a judge of the people. He's also serving in, in a lot of ways as a priest. And we know that the, and as we pick up here in chapter four, verse one, we're not going to read, don't worry, we're not going to read every single word, okay? But I do want to encourage you to read this on your own this week. But as we look at chapter four, verse one, we see this. And the word of Samuel, the word of God to Samuel came to all of Israel. So God is, and this time God speaks to the prophets, the prophets speak to the people. The prophets are the intermediaries between God and his people. They are speaking the word of God to the people. God does not speak directly to the people unless it's in the house of God or through the person of God. And so Samuel, when it says he's speaking, he's speaking the word of God. So the word of God is present, but a huge, huge, huge reality check for all of us is just because the word of God is present doesn't mean worship to God is present. We still must choose. You can grow up in the church and choose not to worship. You can be in here right now and you're hearing the word, but your hearts are closed to worshiping God. And that's where we find the people of Israel. I pray that the presence of the word of God will lead us all to hearts of worship to God, but you have to choose today and you've got to make a choice and choose every day because the nation of Israel, we will see they're good and then they're not. They choose this and then they don't. Praise God for his love and his grace and his repentance. So in chapter four, verse one, we see that the word of Samuel came to Israel. Now Israel went out to battle where this whole this section is about battles and the Israelites are facing battles and so are we. Who Against who? The Philistines. They were encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against the Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. 
And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the Israelites went out to battle the Philistines. They are in a constant battle with the Philistines. The Philistines are a frequent adversary of Israel. They were not happy that the Israelites had came and conquered the promised land. They wanted to drive them back out. They viewed that territory as their territory. Uh, the Philistines are mentioned over 150 times in the book of 1 Samuel. They were originally a seagoing people who conquered land along the Mediterranean coast. And they sought to control all the land that we now know as Palestine. In fact... The name Palestine is a form of the word Philistine. The Philistines, and uh, they, they were ticked against the Israelites for conquering the promised land, and they, we will continue to see them battle and battle and battle against the Israelites. And just like you and I, will continue to experience battles each and every day of our lives, won't we? Again, the problem here is not the presence of the battle. The problem is the absence or the impotence of the battle plan. We see the Israel's defeated, they lost 4,000 men, and so they have this genius idea. They come back to the camp and say, let's take the Ark of the Covenant with us. They're in Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant was housed at Shiloh. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was extraordinarily significant. We're gonna see why in a, se in a second, but here's a synopsis of what happens over the next two, two and a half chapters. We're gonna do some deeper dives into portions of it, but here's a general synopsis of what happens. The people of God then carry the Ark into, of the Covenant into the battle, the Philistines defeat them again. They capture the Ark of the Covenant. There are, they kill 30,000 Israelites, including Eli's sons, the priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The word gets back to the camp in Shiloh of Eli, who was very gravely concerned that they had taken the Ark of the Covenant away. Eli, on hearing the news, not that his sons had died, but on hearing the news that the Ark of the Covenant had been lost and captured, is so taken back, he's old. It says, the text says that. I'm not being, you know... He, he's old. It also says he's a little overweight. It says it differently in the text, but it says he's heavy. And it says he falls over and he dies when he gets this news. Continually, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, who is most concerned also about the Ark of the Covenant, she gives birth to a baby boy after her husband had been killed. She dies shortly after the childbirth, but she names the boy Ichabod, which is a horrible name because it means intentionally that the glory of God has departed. She named him Ichabod in response to losing the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines capture the Ark, they put it in a shrine to their chief god, Dagon, and we'll see what happens there in a second. So you might ask, what's the big deal about the Ark of the Covenant? You know, I watched this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, one time Indiana Jones, and it was okay, but what's the significance of this? Here's the significance of it. The Ark of the Covenant was the most significant thing in the lives of the Israelites, or at least it should have been. It was literally the heart of worship. God instructed Moses to build the Ark in Exodus 25 at the base of Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness journey. After he had delivered them out of slavery. Now the Ark of the Covenant is a constant reminder of God's covenant promises with his people of Israel. Isn't that awesome? It's a reminder of the covenant with Abraham which is a non-conditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional promise, meaning that God is gonna make his people great. He's gonna make the nation of Israel great through Abraham. No matter what they do, he's gonna make them great. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. It's also a reminder of the covenantal promise with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, where Moses, God said to Moses, tell the people, if they do this, if they obey me, then I will bless them. But if not, there will be consequences. 
Now, he also installs a sacrificial system because God loves us. And he always wants to make a way for us, even when we make a mess of ourselves. The covenant, Ark of the Covenant, in every way, points to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And we're going to see that in a second. The Ark had significant instructions reverentially about how to treat it and what not to touch and when to touch it, who can look and who can't look with significant consequences that included very quick death, as we will see here in a second, if they were mistreated. The Ark of the Covenant was carried through 40 years of the wandering wilderness. They worshiped in the wilderness, the Israelites did. Are you, I, well, I don't know what wilderness you find yourself in today, but are you worshiping through it? We sang that song earlier. Because the Ark reminded them of God's covenantal promise, his faithfulness in the wilderness. They built this thing called the tabernacle. You'll see a picture on the screen of this tabernacle. It was a portable place of worship. It was built 350 years before Samuel. At the top of the screen there, you'll see the, um, the tent-like looking thing. That is really the, the, the temple within the tabernacle. In the, at the top, top of the screen behind, there's a, a curtain constituting the Holy Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was held. It was a place where Moses met with the Lord. It was a place where God would speak directly to Moses and they would see things like the pillar of smoke coming up as God melt him in, in a way that the, something called the Shekinah glory, a visible manifestation of the presence of God emerged. Now what's significant about the Ark of the Covenant, you'll see a picture of the Ark of the Covenant right here. It had a very specific design to it. It was a specific type of wood that was used and inside it, it housed three items. One of them was the original Ten Commandments, the tablets upon which God gave his law. The other was a golden canister containing manna. You know, the manna that God used to provide to feed his people as they were in the middle of a wilderness, to remind his people of God's faithfulness, even when we are wandering without purpose, wandering because of a consequence of our own sin, God is faithful. That manna signifies that. The other is the rod of Aaron, which budded and produced almonds in an incredible story in number 17. Read it on your own if you want. But basically there was a rebellion in the camp against God. God handled that. And that rebellion was meant, that, that rod is meant to remember, remind God's people about the significant consequences of when we try to rebel against God or his instituted leaders. So in the Ark of the Covenant, it was, it was, there was gold and there was special wood. And on, on top of this container, you see the seat which cherubim, golden cherubim were over. That portion above the seat between the cherubim was where God met with Moses. And that seat is called the mercy seat. It was used in the day of atonement, the special sacrifices once a year that the priests held to atone for the sins of God. They would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice. There were many different rituals and parts of it that the priests took so that he wouldn't die literally in the holy of holies because God is holy. And if he didn't go through each procedure properly, he would lose potentially his life. But this mercy seat of God is, is a continual reminder of God's mercy for us and his love for us, that God, even, even though when we continue to sin against God, God always makes a way for us. In 1 Samuel 4.4, this text, it continues here in the text today. So the people went at St. Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were both with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant signified the presence of God, literally. That was where God met. As believers today, as followers of the Lord, we have the privilege of having God the Holy Spirit live inside of us, a constant presence with us. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that 
privilege. God met with them through an intermediary who met with God often in the Holy of Holies. It was also meant to signify and remind people of God's promises, his law, his word. Praise God for that. And in every, every way, it points to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, who is God's faithfulness on display, who is a reminder of God's wrath and God's holiness when we rebel, but also God's provision of his mercy in the middle of our mass when God provided a sacrifice ultimately once and for all for our sins that we cannot pay for ourselves. Praise God, amen. So what was happening here? What was wrong with what the Israelites were doing here? Here's the reality. They presumed upon God. They were not genuinely worshiping God when they took the Ark of the Covenant out. They presumed upon him and just said, hey, by the presence of this religious item, we will have victory. God will not be treated like some good luck charm. He is a God to be worshiped, not a genie to be rubbed. The Israelites stopped revering God, which is easy in our hearts and lives. Many, if not all of us, have done that in different parts and are doing that currently. You see, exalting God overall flows from heart values and reverence to when we revere God overall. Are you doing that? Let's look in this text right now to find three different roadblocks to, for, to reverence, and maybe they're true in your life and my life today. The first potential roadblock is this. Seeking to use God instead of surrendering to God. Friends, when the people of God fail to trust the promises of God, you miss out on the presence of God. The people of God were trying to use God here for their own purposes. They were treating God like you might, the lucky pair of socks that you put on to win the big game that you haven't washed in like five weeks because you haven't lost yet. And don't ask me how I know that. And don't imagine that smell, it stinks. But how many of us are like, okay, God, please do this for me. Please do that for me. Do this, do this, do this, do this. We're presuming upon God. We're acting as if God serves us rather than we serve God. Deuteronomy chapter 20 lays out how the Israelites are to go into battle. They're not doing that here. They're, they're, they're teaches us to cry out to God in the middle of a battle and trust that God's gonna fight for us. Friends, there's a huge learning point in this text. Religion cannot save you. A religious artifact cannot save you. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through his grace and through your faith can save you. Going to church can't save you. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ can save you. Friends, where are you presuming upon God today? I watched it, Bryce shared with me this video on Friday. It was a really cool video. It was, it was two believers going out and doing more or less man on the street interviews with, with non-believers asking them, how would you define worship? And then they extrapolated upon that. And it was interesting. They got a variety of responses, but one of their conclusions was 50% of non-believers define worship in some way, different wording, but similar heart, that worship was the exaltation of self. The self-actualization, if you would. Friends, we are all prone to worship ourselves by default. It's our fleshly nature. 
Where are you doing that in your life? Are you worshiping self or are you worshiping your savior? Dog eat dog world. I got to step on other, I have to do this. You're worshiping yourself. I just want to be the best version of me I can. Well, who's this, who's this subject of your sentence there? And who's the source of your significance there? Where are you presuming upon God in your relationships, in your jobs, in your desires, in your leisure, with your resources? Where do you need to worship and surrender them to God? Are you living for God's purpose or your purpose? I love the heart of this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who are you living for today, yourself or your savior? The first roadblock to reverence is, is seeking to use God instead of surrendering to God. The second roadblock to reverence is downplaying and then denying the power and the preeminence of God. You want to see an awesome story? Check out chapter five. The glory had departed. The ark was with the Philistines. Read with me beginning in verse one of chapter five. When the Philistines captured the ark of the God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, who was their chief God. They had many gods, polytheistic society. Dagon was their chief God, their God of gods, if you would, and set it up beside Dagon. Look what happens. When the people of Ashdod rose, rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> So they, they took Dagon and put him back to, to his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands and were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Wow. Verse six, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and, and, and he terrified and he afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. More on that in a second. The, our God will not be mocked. He is not just one of many other gods to be worshiped in whatever way people view worshiping him. He is the one, the only true God. But how many of us downplay and deny the power and the preeminence, preeminence means he is God over all, that nothing compares him of our God. The Philistines would would take the gods of the people that they worshiped and set them up in this shrine with Dagon, almost like trophies. You may be like, why would they ever do that? Well, how many of us take the word of God and set it up as a trophy in our house next to whatever else is important in your life? A championship plaque, a certificate of achievement, a great family photo, and it's just one, the Bible is just one of another thing, important things in your life, if it's even important. That maybe you pull off and out and dust off occasionally. But in doing that, you are downplaying and denying the significance and the preeminence of God. You're doing the exact same thing that the Philistines are doing here. Look at, look at this picture of what Dagon looked like. Let's see. He was a merman, Literally. You might be like, <laughs> why would they worship that? <laughs> I don't know. Why do we worship a little ball with white dimples all over it for four and a half hours like some weekends? Why do we worship green little rectangular pieces of paper with dead politicians and some numbers on it? We worship funny looking things too. 
What are you worshiping? Where are you downplaying and denying the preeminence and the power of God? The Philistines denied the power of God and it did not go well for them. It destroyed them. God laid a heavy hand on them. He laid tumors. He, laid boy, he, he destroyed their bodies because they were not worshiping the one true God. They chose to minimize God. Worship is magnifying God. Worship is magnifying God, not minimizing or marginalizing God. Friends, I have a question for you. Two questions, actually. Where in your life are you minimizing or marginalizing the one true God right now? God wants all your heart, not just some of it. Where in your life, and maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your personal life, maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's in how you spend your money, maybe it's in your hobbies, maybe it's in, I don't know, how you raise your kids, maybe it's in your pursuits, I don't know. Worship is not a tw- it's just a Sunday morning experience. It is, but it's a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week commitment and pursuit of surrendering our hearts to the one true God in every aspect of our life, not just some of them. Second question, where are you magnifying God in your life? Are you magnifying God in every aspect of your life? How can you, not just settling for running from and stopping to marginalize or minimize, but then going to what a worship is, which is magnifying, exalting over, lifting above, saying, God, you're more important. I'm gonna put you back as a hub in my life, uh, the wheel of my life, not just a spoke of my life. I'm gonna organize and orient everything else in my life around you. Where do you need to do that? Because if you don't do that, when you minimize, when you marginalize God, you will be miserable. Your life will be full of misery. When you magnify God, your life will be full of victory. It might not be in your external circumstances, but in the internal circumstances of your heart where it really, really matters, where the key battles are, you will have hope, you will have joy, you will have peace as you worship God. The Philistines were so disturbed about the power of God and the display, they, they played hot potato with the ark. As the rest of chapter five and into chapter six, you see this map on the screen right here. They literally sent him from town to town to town. They're like, ah, and everywhere he went, people were filled with, the ark went, people were filled with boils, with tumors, not boils, tumors. They were afflicted in a great way because God is not gonna be mocked to the point where they're like, get him out of here. We're in chapter six. They go, if this really is God, we're gonna put him on a cart, get some milk cows out, which by the way, the milk cows shouldn't have been able to tow this cart for a lot of different reasons. Not, we don't have enough time to go into it. And they said, the ark will find its way back to Israel, which it did in chapter six. After seven months in Philistine territory, everywhere it went, they were afflicted when they were not, because they were marginalizing God. Friends, where in your life are you marginalizing God? The third roadblock to reverence is this. It's disobeying the word of God and disregarding the holiness of God. As you look with me at chapter 6, verse 14, to, through the end of chapter 6 here, you'll see this reality of happening. The, the, the ark gets back into Israelite territory at, Beth, at this place called Beth Shemesh. They were reaping, verse 13 of chapter six, they're reaping the wheat harvest in the valley. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark. They rejoiced to see it. They worshiped at it. The cart came into the field of Joshua and they, they put up a great stone. They split the wood and they, they immediately worshiped. They created some sacrifices, they, uh, an offering to the Lord and thanksgiving. And they asked this question. 
Because what happened next was some people in that town actually looked into the Ark of the Covenant, which they were not supposed to do. In verse 19 of chapter six, it says, and God and he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, it means he killed them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Maybe they did it intentionally. Maybe they did it unintentionally. Maybe they forgot. Regardless, they disobeyed the command of God and how they were to treat the Ark of the Covenant of God. And God laid out the punishment that had been established by taking their lives. They lacked reverence. They disobeyed the word of God and they disregarded the holiness of God by treating the Ark of the Covenant of God with irreverence. Where in your life, intentionally or unintentionally, are you disobeying the word of God right now? Where in your life are you treating God irreverently? Because the consequences are extremely significant. God is holy and he will not be mocked. Often our roadblock to reverence is our own selves. It's our choice to disobey and to disregard the holiness of God and the word of God. To go, God's just another nice thing. No, he's not. He, God doesn't just want to be another nice thing. He doesn't just want to be a religious thing. He wants to be the thing in your life. And he deserves it and he demands it. And he will not yield it to any other. So I don't know where you need to do, what action you need to take to restore the reverence in your heart, to restore the commitment, the honoring of God. Or, but I encourage you to make that today to get rid of these roadblocks. Roadblocks aren't overcome, unovercomable. They require a decision to be made right now to restore that God is number one in your life. Or maybe it's not a restoration project today of reverence for you, but an installation project of reverence for you. Maybe you've never revered God to begin with. Today's a great day to start. God loves you and, and yes, your life might be messy and yes, you might have been wandering far from him, but he has mercy for you as we are about to see. Would you come to the Lord today? The, the author of Hebrews puts it this way about reverence and worship. He says, therefore, since we are in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled, let us be filled with gratitude. And so worship our God acceptably with reverence and awe for what? Our God is a consuming fire. Isn't that awesome? Reverence and awe, not just eh, ambivalence, reverence and awe because he's a consuming fire. And I pray that he would consume all of your heart today because that's how you experience the victory. Experiencing victory comes through living reverently, which leads us to our second part of the battle plan today is after we restore reverence, we need to course correct. Why do we need to course correct? Because God's mercy should lead me to repentance. God's mercy should lead me to repentance. Look with me at chapter seven. And the men of Kirith Jerem, they, they moved the Ark of the Covenant from Beth Shemesh to Kirith Jerem. Verse seven, chapter one, came and took the Ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Adinadad, Dab, on the hill. And they consecrated his own son Eleazar to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. From that day forward, the Ark was lodged at Kirith Jerem. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of the Lord were lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all, the, all of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Course correct. I don't know how many of us today are playing spiritual hot potato with the Lord. I'm good, but no, I'm gonna get him out of here. Or maybe you're playing spiritual hokey pokey. You got one foot in and then you put it out, you shake it around a little bit. But we need to get right with the Lord. No matter how you've been living or how you've been acting, God is not just unceasingly holy, but he's also unconditionally loving. He's unconditionally loving because when our lives are full of mess, he is full, still full of mercy. Demonstrating mercy is not just something God does, but being merciful is something God is. Is his character. We know this from the words of 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Isn't that awesome? Look at your neighbor and say, he's talking to you. God is, not pa- God is patient with you. Isn't that amazing? He is patient with me, he's patient with you, and he wants you to reach repentance. Why? Because he wants to spend eternity with you. He wants to live in unbroken relationship with you, and the only pathway to unbroken relationship is through repentance. Reverence should lead to repentance. Repentance leads to relationship and restoration, and rejuvenation of joy and hope and peace and love. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. Praise God, he moves quickly on fulfilling his promises and he moves slowly (laughs) in terms of removing patience. Praise God. What an amazing God we serve. He never gives up on us and he always makes a way for us even when we screw it up ourselves. Our God is a God of the covenant and he's a God of the cross. When we broke the covenant, our end of it, he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for it and to make a way for us. So what is mercy? Mercy is loving kindness. It is the removal of a punishment that we deserve. It's compassion, it's patience, it's divine forbearance and God's patience in passing over our sin. It's forgiving our sins and cleansing us from our unrighteousness. Praise God for his patience, amen. And a heart of true reverence leads to genuine repentance all day, every day. God's mercy should lead us to repentance. Repentance biblically in the definition of the word means changing the way that you think and you live. It's a transformation. It is a course correction. We see that in the text right here. And verse three of chapter seven, and Samuel said to all the house of the earth, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, the word returning in the original language literally means a course correction. I'm gonna turn away from how I was living and I'm gonna turn back to God. Not just with some of me, but with all of me. Where in your life do you need to do that? Repentance is a decision and it's a process, an ongoing process. And it's never too late to repent. Ask the thief on the cross next to Jesus. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Where do you need to repent today? Here's the process of repentance. It's a course correcting that is life altering and heart transforming. This text gives us this process. Praise God for that. The first part of this process is authentic brokenness. And we see that in verse two of chapter seven. From the day of the ark was lodged at Kareth Jerem, a long time past some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented. For 20 years they were lamenting. Lament is a deep grief. There was a brokenness of authenticity over their sinful actions. Not for 20 seconds or 20 minutes, for 20 years. Wow. 
Are you broken by the reality of your sin or are you just sad you got caught? Or are you fearing the consequences and trying to get out of them? Authentic brokenness going, ah, God, I have sinned against you and I am a mess. And God, I can't fix it. I need you and I want to be different. Where in your life do you need to do that? This is not a, I'm sorry you got hurt, God. It's a, I screwed up and I get it and I own it. I'm not excusing it. I'm done rationalizing it. And I'm broken by it because I want to be different. And maybe that's you. You don't know how. You just want to be different. You want your life to change. There is one way and it's through repentance. Throwing yourself on the mercy and the grace of God and the gospel of God that says God covered your sin. And the second part of the process of repentance is after authentic brokenness is genuine confession. Verse three teaches us that. If you want to return to the Lord, do it with all your heart. God, here I am. I'm going to confess all aspects of my heart that have been wandering from you. I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to confess it to you. I'm going to trust your promises in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 that says, as I confess my sin, you are faithful and just and you will forgive me of all of my sins and you will cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness. Praise God. God, I want to course correct today. I want to confess this because I want to commit to you. Where in your life do you need to put down the rationalizations and the justifications and the explanations and fall on your face in humility and desperation and just say, God, I am a sinner and I need your grace and I trust you. Please cover my sin with the spilled and finished blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The third part of the process of, of repentance is turning away from sin. Verse three, put away the foreign gods from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. What foreign gods do you need to put away? Put away means put away. Cut off what needs to be cut off, Jesus teaches us. Cut off your arm, poke out your eye, cut off your leg. If it's causing you to sin, Jesus is more. I'm gonna revere him more. I'm gonna do what it needs to take. It means maybe I'm gonna delete that contact in my phone that I've just attempted to. I'm gonna get off the social media app. I'm gonna cut up my credit card. I'm gonna get this unsweets out of my house so I stop being gluttonous. I'm gonna, whatever it is, get rid of the laptop, cut off the internet, do whatever it takes, get accountability, open up to God vertically and horizontally to others because you can't win this war alone. You need battle buddies. Where gods do you need to turn away from today? Choose to change. And finally, turn to, to God and serving God. This is part of the process. It's not enough. It's more repentance. It's not just turning from sin. It's turning to my Savior. The text right here says, turn to God. Direct your heart to the Lord, verse 3, and serve him only. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they serve the Lord only. It's not just turning away from sin. It's turning to God with all your heart. Where do you need to turn to God today? Where are you serving God today? where you need to commit to God to serve him. There's only room for one master on the throne of your heart. Jesus says, look, you can't serve both God and money and fill in the blank for God and. You fill it in with whatever it is. Maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's a profession. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. I don't know what it is for you, but you can't serve God and this. You can only serve one master. And if it's not Jesus Christ in your heart, it will not go well for you right now. Where do you need to turn to God in your heart? And not just go, God, I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to actively serve you. 
I'm going to get in the word. I'm going to serve your church. I'm going to use my gifts, my talents, my finances, my resources to build your church and your kingdom. And if you want help in doing that, man, I would love to walk with you, Pastor Andrew. Any of our staff, elders, leaders, small group leaders, there are ample opportunity in this church, in the community, to build God's church and to serve the Lord. And make restitution where necessary. Make it right. Make it right with God vertically. Make it right horizontally with others. That's part of these offerings that are committed. There is victory through repentance. But true victory only comes after repentance. There's freedom through repentance as the power of the gospel is on display. Verse six says that Samuel judged the people. We will all face judgment day one day before the Lord. Every single one of us. And on that day, there is no hiding, no rationalizing, no excusing. You will stand before God who knows everything you have ever done. Everything you have ever committed. And the question of that day is, are you convicted or are you covered? Are you condemned or are you covered? Covered by the blood of Jesus. Not that you haven't done crazy stuff and sinful stuff you have, but that Jesus' blood has covered it because you've committed your life to him. Don't wait, friends. Don't wait. Repentance doesn't just impact our future, but our now. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We see that right here. Experiencing victory comes through living reverently. The third part of the battle plan is this, declaring dependence. God's authority should give me confidence. Look at what happens right here. Verse seven. Immediately after this great ceremony, the battle continues. The Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And I don't know what battles you're afraid of today, but the people of Israel get it. Verse 8, and the people of Israel, key verse, said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a suckling lamb and he offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. The Lord answered him. The Lord always answers our prayers. As Samuel offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound. Our God is awesome. But that day that against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mizpah, pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. In verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. That's what Ebenezer means. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Catch this. Verse 14, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. Our God is a God of restoration. He's a God of help. We see that in text. The Philistines thought it was a prime time to attack Israel. Israel was afraid that they were about to be routed. What battles are you facing right now that you're afraid of? God understands and he's with you. Just because something used to be a certain way doesn't mean it has to be that way. But we see that the Israelites choose to fight this battle differently. No longer are they bringing and dragging religious artifacts into the war, but they're crying out to the God who is over the battle, the one who wants to fight for them and is committed to them. And they go, God, you are our help, verse eight. Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord. Don't stop. This is how we fight our battles, on our knees. And while the battle is raging, friends, our God is roaring. Literally in this text, the voice of God thundered. Isn't that awesome? Look, God uses unconventional ways to demonstrate his supernatural powers. He's done it before and he'll do it again. They acknowledged the reality. They poured out their hearts in prayer. This is the battle plan of dependency. They claimed God's character. Oh, Lord, you are sovereign and you're our God. It's personal. 
our God, my God, and same thing for you. God, you're positionally your Lord. You're powerful, your Lord. Your promise is that you're gonna help. I'm gonna claim that. And I'm gonna pour out my heart in prayer. And they declared the dependence. They used worship as their weapon and God won the victory. Same thing in our life. And they set up a stone to remember that our God helps. You know, the name of that stone is Ebenezer. You ever sing the song, O come thou fountain of every blessing? You get to that verse. And I raise my Ebenezer and I go, what the word is this? This is what that is. And I raise that stone. I raise to the reality of that. My God is my helper. That's what that verse from that hymn is quoting. Here I praise, raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise the stone of the reality of God's help in my life. And he's done it before and he's gonna do it again. He is a God of restoration. He restored the land to the Israelites. As you repent to him, he will restore an unbroken vertical relationship with him. And he is a God that restores several horizontal relationships. Mary, he can restore marriages. He can restore relationships with your kids and friends and families, the like. So friends, the question today is this. The Israelites experienced peace in the land, the text says in verse 14, because of their repentance, because of their dependence, and because of their reverence. You want peace? Follow the same battle plan. Reverence, obedience, dependence. Where do you need to do that today? Experiencing victory comes through living reverently. I want you to go ahead and take your communion cups out. your home, feel free to use anything that's nearby. Communion is remembering. Communion is remembering God's sacrifice for us and what he means to us. If you would, go ahead and bow your heads with me. We're going to participate in communion in a minute, but before we do that, we're going to fight a little bit more. I want you to think about that battle. I want to think about that battle that you're fighting right now. I want you to imagine yourself as the Israelites. You see the Philistines mounting their armies. You remember that they routed you not that recently. But in this moment, I want you to begin to fight in the same way that 1 Samuel 7, 8 teaches us. To claim the character of our God. You go, God, you're faithful. God, your love is unconditional. God, fill me with your amazing mercy again. Point my heart to the reality that if you are for me, nothing can be against me. Next few moments. Why do we worship? We worship because we serve a God whose amazing, grace is amazing, whose love is unconditional, whose mercy is without limit, whose forgiveness is without end. And when I was a mess, lavished his mercy upon me. When I was guilty, he poured out his grace upon me. When I couldn't save myself, he sent his son to save me and die for me. That's why I worship. That's why I worship the one true God, not because I'm perfect, but because he's perfect. And when I fall short, 
He's faithful to forgive. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus met with his disciples and he took out a piece of bread and a cup. He took out this bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. So church, at the top of your container, you have a little wafer. I want you to pull that out right now. Communion is, is a remembrance. It's a celebration. It's an act of worship. There's nothing salvific about communion, but it points us to our Savior. Here at Harvest, we celebrate open communion. You don't have to be a member of, the, of Harvest or a member of a family to partake, but we do ask that it be for believers, that if you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would politely refrain. But I would implore you and ask you and encourage and exhort you with all my heart, because I love you, that if you have not made that decision to make it right now, to choose to put your faith in God, that's the only way your life is gonna change. Scripture teaches us to not take communion with an unclean heart. So in these next few moments, I would ask that you could search, ask God to search your heart and confess any sin in your heart that has been unrepentant before God. Give it to God, throw yourself on his mercy and his grace, and then I'll lead us in taking the wafer in about in a few seconds. But open your heart of confession before the Lord right now. he was betrayed, Jesus took his, his bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Harvest family and friends, would you now eat this wafer in remembrance of Jesus' body who was broken for you on a cross? He then took out a cup. He said, when you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. This is my blood spilled for you. The reality is, is that Jesus held nothing back for you. He poured out every ounce of his blood for you. We are passionate worshipers here at Harvest in a response of Jesus' passionate love for us. He poured himself out for us and we are to pour ourselves out for him. So now, before we take this, this juice, we confessed before we ate the bread. Now I want you to commit. Because again, repentance is not just turning from sin. The, second, the other part of repentance is turning to God. It's committing to serve God. It's committing to love God. It's committing to live to God with every aspect. If repentance isn't done, until you turn to God. So where in your heart do you need to commit? And what do you need to commit? What do you need to give to God right now? Commit to serve him, commit to follow him, commit to give your life to him. Where in your life do you need to do that? So in the next few seconds, go ahead and make that commitment to God. Ask God to stir in your heart and then commit. And maybe share it with somebody for accountability. The night he was betrayed, Jesus took the, the cup and he drank it and he said, this is my blood spilled for you. When you drink this, drink it in remembrance of me. Harvest family friends, would you drink this juice in remembrance of Jesus' blood for you? Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for your grace. 
We thank you for that your love is unconditional. I don't have to earn it and I can't, I definitely don't deserve it. And in these moments, God, I just pray that you would restore a heart of reverence in each and every one of us that would lead us to repentance, God, that would lead us to a course correction in our lives. God, that leads us to, to confess to you our sins and commit our lives to for you, to declare our dependency that we are nothing without you, but we are everything with you. Father, God, help us to make that choice. It's hard. There's opposition, but you've given us the victory. God, we love you so much. Thank you for the reality of your mercy and the power of your grace. In your name we pray, amen.